uh, Zephaniah talks about the fact that Jesus is singing over us. I mean, think about that, that God, the creator of the universe, is singing over you right here, right now. You know, I think about even as a dad sometimes when I'm putting my kids to sleep and I'm just singing over them, I'm looking at them because I love them so much and it's just a song comes out of me and I just I sing it over them. And Well, the Father looks at you no matter what you've done and he's singing over you. You have his affection. You, he adores you. He loves you not by anything that you've done, not by anything you've earned. He's just chosen to love you. And so, man, if we can just get that in our hearts, the fact that God loves me, he's for me, he's not against me. Man, how much would that change our worship? How much would that change just how we enter every single day with our heads held high? And so that's what this song is about. Jesus loves me. And so let's just embrace that tonight. Let's just receive that tonight. And let's walk in the confidence of that truth. Amen. It was just three words, but it changed my life. Just a childlike truth that consumed my
Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me, this I know. I won't forget. The Bible says that He loves me so. Yes, Jesus loves me, and His love won't forsake me. I know. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. Oh, He loves. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for that truth. Do you love each and every single one of us? God, speak to us tonight, Lord. Help us to grasp a hold of that truth and then to just be led by you. God, our hearts are open. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Say goodbye to all that haunts 
your guilt to yesterday. Hope will dawn with each tomorrow. The grip of fear will lose its hold if I no longer by your failures you'll find strength in letting go there is freedom and forgiveness there is peace and sweet relief grace and mercy now are waiting when you bow at Jesus' feet. Grace and mercy now are waiting when you bow at Jesus' feet. When you bow at Jesus' Thanks for coming on Tuesday night, and thanks to all who have joined us by live stream. We're glad that you're with us tonight. Second Samuel, one verse out of chapter 8. When we pick up David's story, he is no longer the ready-cheeked shepherd boy caring for his father's sheep. He is now the high king of Israel. Honored by the people of Israel and Judah. He has reigned over Israel now for many years. God has blessed his rulership. As a matter of fact, it says there in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, David reigned over all of Israel, doing what was just and right for the people. Now we pick up his story in chapter 9, and we begin the reading with verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? That word kindness can also be interpreted grace. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show grace for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king asked him or said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness or grace? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, 
he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness or grace for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? The king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Father, I want to thank you tonight for the sweet spirit that has been in each of these services. These folks come from a busy, active lifestyle. They come with their families tonight. They've taken time out of what they would normally do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday to be in this revival meeting. And I pray that tonight, I don't know who this is for, Father, but I pray that your grace would be experienced in the lives of all of us. Oh, we've experienced your grace to a degree. But Father, we want that grace to come alive in our spirits and minds tonight. And if there is a person here this evening that needs to experience the grace of God, may this be their night. May this be a red-letter day for them. Help us to deliver the message in an effective manner for your glory, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace. Grace. It's one of the great hallmark words in Christian discourse. Webster defines grace as unmerited divine favor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian from Germany, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that survived the Nazi book burnings in the early part of World War II, he coined a phrase, cheap grace. And when he coined that phrase, cheap grace, and followed that up with some explanation of what he was talking about, in a sense, he is reminding us that there is a fine line between grace that is measured and grace that is treasured. If we just believe, as we said the other night, that grace is free and unlimited, 
then we will take grace for granted and not treasure the grace that has been provided for you and me. Grace, according to the Word of God, has multiple facets. There is saving grace. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And thankfully, that grace, that saving grace, has been extended to all of us. Not a person here in the building tonight who cannot experience saving grace if you so desire it. God has provided that for you. You can come here tonight. You can sit there in your seat. You can come to the front of this platform and you can say, Lord, I want to know your saving grace. I want to know what it is to be brought from sin into new life with Jesus Christ. You can be saved just as some were last night. You can be saved here tonight. Saving grace. But then the Bible also talks about purifying grace. Paul wrote to Titus, in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us and purify for himself a people that are his very own who are eager to do that which is good. Just like saving grace, purifying grace is available as well. We can know not only what it is to be saved, have our sins forgiven, we can know what it is to allow the Holy Spirit to come and cleanse us. We talked about that one night as we shared the surrendered life. It was Sunday morning, I believe, when we talked about dying out to self-centeredness and allowing him to come in and purify us from the inside out. But there is not only saving grace and purifying grace, there is also sustaining grace. In writing to the church at Corinth, in the second letter of the Apostle Paul, and tells them what had happened in his own life. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, he said, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in, my, in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And like saving grace and purifying grace, sustaining grace is available for the people of God. We can know what it is to call upon him and he's going to be to us like Aaron and her were to Moses when he grew weary as he over. Uh, look the army of Israel as they battled the enemy of Israel. And as long as his arms were raised like this, the battle went for Israel. But when he grew tired and lost his own strength, God brought alongside him Aaron and her to hold up his hands so that he might be sustained in that moment. And so it is in our lives as well. When we're saved and purified in that we have the treasure, as we have noted already this week, in an earthen vessel, there are going to be those times that we need those to come alongside. The Holy Spirit will be there to sustain us. And we can, with the Apostle Paul, say that no matter what I face, no matter what I'm going through right now, His grace is sufficient for me. But not only do we have saving grace and purifying grace, 
and sustaining grace, there's also healing grace. I thank God tonight that I serve a God who can heal us. I believe in divine healing. I've heard too many stories about it, not to believe in it. And I believe the Bible teaches that according to God's sovereignty, he can provide healing, grace for our physical infirmities. The psalmist David said it like this in chapter 103 of Psalms. He said, praise the Lord my soul, O my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Physical healing, unlike or physical grace or healing grace, unlike saving grace or purifying grace or sustaining grace, is delivered to you and me according to God's sovereignty. It will be God himself who determines who receives healing grace. And then along with these others that we've already mentioned, there is also dying grace. The Apostle Paul told young Timothy one day, he said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me only, but also those who have longed for his appearing. And this grace, this dying grace, is not extended until it's needed. When you come down to that dividing line of worlds, now, in this great event that we read in your hearing a moment ago, we can see images of God's extended grace through what is happening in the life of King David. He mirrors in this gesture toward this man by the name of Mephibosheth, God's extended grace to you and me. I want you to think back with me to the days of David when he was king and Israel was under his rulership. Think back to those days even before that when King Saul was the king. You see the people of Israel, they cried out. They'd, they'd come into the promised land. And I don't get this. The people of Israel, they were just stupid. <laughs> the people of Israel just amazed me sometimes. Over and over again, God would do these incredible things for the people of Israel. He brought them from Egypt to the promised land. And now they've gained entrance into the promised land. And as they get there, they look around and they didn't do as God wanted them to do. They didn't drive out all the pagans. And they begin to notice that these pagan people, they had kings of their own. And so they begin to ask God, can't we have a king like these other countries have kings? And so God granted the request and gave them King Saul. And one can only imagine what King Saul could have accomplished had he remained obedient to God. But his story is a story I don't have time to tell you. But he, he walked away from God. And on the battlefield, the armies of Israel were being defeated. And Saul recognized what was going on. And he told one of his servants, one of his sword bearers, he said, pierce me with that sword and kill me. I don't want to see what's happening. And that servant said no. And he fell on his own sword and committed suicide. And Saul's sons, including Jonathan, David's best friend died that day on the battlefield as well. Now because the people of Israel 
had adopted the mindset of the pagans regarding a king and the rules that came along with having their own king, it was the custom that if the king dies or he's killed on the battlefield, then all the remaining members of the king's family were to be put to death. And when news of Saul's death and his son's deaths reached the palace, the nurse that cared for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, knowing what would happen to that baby, he would be put to death. She rushed into the nursery and she grabbed that child and as she was running out of the nursery, out of the palace, she dropped the baby. And as a result, that baby would remain lame in both feet for the rest of his life. And now, some 20 years later, David is now the high king of Israel. Following numerous victories over their enemies, one day, for whatever reason, we do not know, perhaps in a moment of nostalgia, he's thinking about those days when he had that friendship with Jonathan and how close he was to Jonathan, the tenuous relationship that he had with King Saul and the civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. He remembers his friend's tragic death. Then David asked a question that echoes through the palace like a cannon shot. Is there anyone in the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness? On two occasions, once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, there are verses and statements that set David apart from all the other kings that served Israel and Judah. He was titled, A Man After God's Own Heart. It's alluded to in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. It's specifically stated in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. After removing Saul, God made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. And in this message tonight, we see evidence of that title given to David because we see in what he does next a mirror image of God's extended grace to you and me. I want you to notice the question. Did you hear the question that he asked there sitting in the palace one day? He wasn't talking to anyone in particular. He was the king and all ears were attuned to his voice. He didn't ask anybody in particular at first. He just made the statement. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show grace or kindness for Jonathan's sake. And then it says there was. There was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. We read that earlier. He said, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. He said, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? It's very interesting to me when I read this question that David did not ask this. He didn't ask, is there anyone deserving 
He didn't ask, is there anyone qualified? He didn't ask, is there someone who can assist me in running the affairs of Israel? Is there someone who can influence the people on my behalf? He didn't ask that kind of a question. He just simply said, is there anyone? 33 generations later, Jesus Christ, as he walked the face of this earth, said, is there anyone? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I believe if Jesus were to stand here tonight in a blue blazer and a pair of khaki slacks and a pair of chucka boots, <laughs> I believe that he would look at this congregation and he would say to you, is there anyone whose life is going nowhere? Is there anyone whose dreams have been shattered by a ruthless society? Is there anyone here whose heart has been broken in a relationship? Is there anybody here tonight, anyone whose marriage is dead or dying? Is there anyone? I'm so thankful that that question was not only asked by David regarding Mephibosheth, it's also asked to us, is there anyone? I married a Hoosier. I'm a Tar Heel by birth, Hoosier by choice. <laughs> and when I married Gretchen over 21 years ago, I took her from Bedford, Indiana to North Carolina. She has a son by the name of Trent, grandson by the name of Kenny. So now she's 10 hours away from her son and her grandson. And from time to time, she'd say, I just need to talk to Trent today. And back in those days, we didn't have the cell phones readily accessible like we do now. So I'd say, call him. She'd call him. Every once in a while, she would just miss them terribly, and I could see it in her face, sense it in her body language. I'd say, we're going to buy you a ticket, send you home, so you can spend some time with your boy and your grandson. And she would go. I remember this one particular day, she was on the phone with her son, Trent. And at the end of the conversation, she told me this after the fact, she said, Trent, as he was about to hang up, he said, oh, by the way, Mom, I saw Reno Bates the other day. Reno Bates was my stepson's childhood friend. They grew up together in Bedford, Indiana. They went to grammar school together. They were in Cub Scouts together. They went to high school together. And Reno Bates grew to be a giant of a young man, about six foot eight. 250 pounds, perhaps. And everybody loved Reno. He was just a good guy, a great big teddy bear. He made the basketball team at Bedford North Lawrence High School there in Bedford, Indiana. And he wasn't good enough to make the starting five, but when the team would be way ahead or, or way behind, uh, the, the student body, they would begin to chant his name because everybody just loved Reno. They'd say, Reno, 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 until finally the coach would relent and put Reno in the game. Everybody liked Reno, but Reno came for her, from a, a horrendous home life. His father was a wicked, wicked, reprobate of a man. He was into alcohol and drugs. He even sold his wife so that he could get money to feed his habits. Died a horrible, horrible death. And it was the hope that Reno would not fall into those same traps that had killed his father. 
But it wasn't long until Reno fell into those same traps. Out of school now, into the drug scene, drinking, throwing it, being thrown into jail time and time again. And when he would be thrown into jail, Trent would go see his friend Reno. And one day, one day he came in from visiting Reno in jail and he told his mother, he said, Mom, I'm not going to go see Reno anymore. He's going to be just like his dad. He's going to get killed in some kind of a drug bust. Somebody's going to hit him over the head with a baseball bat, take him out of this world. I'm just not going to mess with him anymore. Not going to waste my time on Reno. This particular day, Gretchen was talking to Trent. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Oh, by the way, Mom, I saw Reno Bates the other day, and Reno's got religion. And my wife said, really? Didn't go into it. It was a bit sarcastic sounding from Trent. He's not a Christian yet. A few weeks passed. They're talking again on the phone. At the end of the conversation, Trent says to his mother, oh, by the way, Mom, I saw Reno again the other day. And Mom, what Reno has got is real. See, one night in jail, his cellmate walked up to Reno and said, Reno, we're having pizza for supper tonight. Tell you what I'll do, Reno. I'll give you my pizza for supper if you'll go with me to the Bible study they have here in the jail. And Reno, being a big guy and liking to eat, he took him up on the deal took the guy's pizza and went to the Bible study, not knowing what was about to happen to him. And Reno Bates, in that Bible study, in jail in Bedford, Indiana, was radically saved. I mean, genuinely born again. His life was changed in that moment. A few weeks passed after that conversation Gretchen had had with her son. She went back to Indiana to visit with him for a few days. Kenny, the little guy, He's now playing Little League Baseball. And so she's going to go out and watch Kenny practice baseball. Guess who Kenny's coach was? <laughs> Reno Bates. She said, I watched that big guy teach those little kids how to slide into the bases, how to hit the ball, how to catch the ball, the basic fundamentals of playing baseball. And she said, then I watched him as he gathered them around him at the end of the practice and prayed for every one of those little boys before dismissing them to their parents from the sidelines. And then he, she said, he got up and started toward the sidelines and saw me and he said, oh, well, look who we have here. How are you doing? And my wife said, that's the question of the hour, Reno. How are you doing? He said, I'm saved, sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. That's how I'm doing. Uh, this past Memorial Day weekend, we were in a revival in Orleans, Indiana, just down the road from Bedford, Indiana. And in the door, the first night of the revival meeting, walked Reno Bates and his wife and his mother, uh, and he's still serving God, pastoring the church today. Uh, you see, the Bible says, is there anyone? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Anybody can come. He invites all of us to come and experience his extended Grace, is there anyone? Is there anyone of the house of Saul? That's an interesting part of the question. Who was Saul to David? Why should David show any favoritism to the house of Saul? Saul lied to David. Saul cheated David. 
Saul was jealous of David. Saul hated David. Saul tried to murder David. Saul chased David like a hound chases a fox. Why should David show any kindness to anybody that had anything to do with Saul? But you see, the beautiful part of God's grace is depicted here in David's attitude about it because David is ready to leave in the past those things that happened in the past. And I am so thankful for a God who does not haunt me with my past. I'm thankful for a God who has put it behind me. He doesn't throw it up to me and try to guilt trip me with it. You see, David is showing the face of mercy, the face of grace, it's showing mercy to the merciless. It's showing mercy to the undeserving. It's showing grace to those who can't help themselves. It's showing grace and mercy to those who have nothing to offer in return. Is there anyone? But then notice the second question. And it depicts the compassion of David. Where is he? Where is he? There's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet, Ziba told David. Where is he, the king asked. He is at the house of Maker, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. When he heard that he was crippled, David didn't ask, how crippled is he? There are people in your church and outside this church who have been crippled by life. There might be somebody right here in this service tonight. You feel like you've been beaten up by the world and beaten up by what Satan is trying to accomplish in your life through those powers under his influence. Crippled by sin because they bought into the, bought into the lie that, that there is pleasure in sin. And the Bible says that. There is pleasure in sin for a season, the Bible says. And we need to... We need to revisit our attitude about sin in the life of the Christian. And remember that sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Satan will lie to you. He'll tell you it's all right to sin because of God's grace. I mean, why not? God's grace is still there even after you sin. He's going to get you to buy in. They go ahead and have the pleasurable times. Do the things maybe you know you shouldn't do, but you do them anyway uh, with the idea that you can just come back and ask for forgiveness. You see, he'll get you to buy into that idea. Sin will be fun until your hands shake with dimension tremors. Sin will be fun until you lie to the people in your life that love you because you've got to feed a habit and you steal from it. Sin is fun until the young lady tells the boyfriend we're pregnant. And he says, what do you mean we? I mentioned my grandson Kenny a moment ago. Uh, I have a great relationship with my stepson Trent and my step-grandson Kenny. Kenny is 27 years old. When I first met him, he carried the rings on the pillow down the aisle of the Bedford Free Methodist Church in front of his dad and my wife-to-be as they walked down the aisle on our wedding day. Cute little kid. He loved racing. He was following in his dad's footsteps. His dad raced a street stock car on dirt tracks in southern Indiana. 
up until about last year. And Kenny followed right in his footsteps. And I went to see Kenny drive go-karts. That's where he started. Man, he was good. You could tell at an early age, while he was just eight or nine years old, this guy has got the gifts to drive a, a racing go-kart. And he could do it. And he, he just did it well. And then he graduated to mini sprints. And I can remember going to those dirt tracks in southern Indiana and watching Kenny race those mini sprints, both winged and non-winged mini sprints. And he would often come out ahead of all the competitors. It was obvious he's got a future in this. And then he graduated to 800 horsepower sprint cars. I'll never forget that night. Friday night, Bloomington Speedway, Bloomington, Indiana. He was 17 years old. He was 14th in the field, had to win the consolation race to get into the feature. Kinzer Memorial, one of the big races at Bloomington Speedway each year. And I watched, along with his granny, my wife, as that 17-year-old young man drove that 800-horsepower sprint car through those other cars from 14th to 12th to 10th, 7th, 5th, 2nd. And then I saw him on the straightaway take Brady short on the outside and go past him and leave him in his dust and win the Kinzer Memorial. Youngest race car driver to ever win that race in all of its history. We were so proud. We just knew somebody was going to see him, pick him up. He gained sponsors, moved to the next level. But the next year, his dad sold the car. And we couldn't understand that. We thought, well, I wonder why. Then we realized, oh, it's the money. There's so much money involved in racing. That's why the car was sold. Ten years. That was our assumption. A year ago this past February, my wife had her iPad out. I was on the road somewhere in a revival. She was checking the news from Bedford, Indiana on her iPad. And she pulled up the news blurb from that newspaper in Bedford. And there was a picture of a young man. She told me this after she saw it. She said, I saw that picture and said to myself, that looks like Kenny. And it was. He'd been arrested. They found him unresponsive in his car alongside of the road near Mitchell, Indiana. A victim of drugs. He'd been on drugs 10 years. His dad had protected my wife Kenny's grandmother, from the anguish of that, he didn't want her to know. He knew it would just do something almost unimaginable to my wife. They got him out on bail. A few weeks passed, and Kenny was in the car with a couple of friends, pulled up to a stoplight there in the Bedford area. Policeman saw him, recognized him, and was going to pull him over and make sure he didn't have any more drugs. And Kenny took off from that stoplight, and the race was on. The chase was on. Car was wrecked. His two passengers went out injured, but they were apprehended. But Kenny escaped into the woods, spent the night in 30-degree temperatures along a creek bank with nothing but a T-shirt and a pair of jeans on. 
Friends of his dad found him the next day, secured a lawyer, turned him in. I've never known such dark days in my life. I've never seen my wife in such anguish as I saw her in those days. We would go down to the treatment center and I would hear this young man that was so bright and intelligent that had such a future say things that made no sense. The drugs had done their job. I'm glad that I can report as of today, Kenny Niflis, my step-grandson, is 19 months clean. And we praise God for that. When I look at my grandson, I'm reminded of what David is doing here. My heavenly father doesn't say, well, how crippled is Kenny? Can we do anything for Kenny? Oh, he doesn't ask those kind of questions. Kenny's not there yet, but we're praying. And I want you to join with me in praying for my step-grandson and my stepson that this extended grace I've been talking about tonight will somehow burst into their minds and into their hearts to where they cannot deny it. You've got friends like that. You've got family members like that as well. And I'm so thankful that our Heavenly Father doesn't say, well, how crippled are they? Doesn't judge us, doesn't measure us. He just extends grace to us. And I'm so thankful for that tonight. Doesn't He doesn't care how crippled we are. It says there in the book that he was in Lodabar. Do you know what Lodabar means in the Hebrew language? Lodabar means barren place. The redemptive reality for us is that our Heavenly Father knows where we are and He still cares. He has an unspoiled history of extending grace to us. But then finally, notice David's restoration. Remember, Mephibosheth was supposed to be put to death. For over 20 years, he's avoided execution. He's lived down in Lodabar all of those years, hidden from the watchful eye, the investigative eye of David in his court. And now David said, is there anyone? And Ziba says, there is one. His name is Mephibosheth. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Mephibosheth when he's sitting there at that house of Maker? And he hears the thunder of horses' hooves and the pounding on the dirt of a chariot. And those matched stallions pull up in front of Maker's house. Mephibosheth, I wonder what he thought. He's found me. He's found me. The deception's up. And they put him in that chariot and they brought him back to the palace. 
2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. They brought him in front of King David. And notice what David said to Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you grace or kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore. Fear not. I will restore. You will always eat at my table. That's what our Heavenly Father says to us. He extends his grace to us tonight and he says, don't be afraid. I'll restore. I'll do in you what nobody else can do for you. I can give you grace that will forgive. I can give you grace that will purify. I can give you grace that will sustain you. I will give grace that will heal a broken spirit, a broken mind, a broken heart. I will give you grace. I will restore. When you study the New Testament, the amazing thing about how God's grace works, and quite frankly, I, I don't know if I, I could explain how it works right down to the minutest detail. I just know it does. I know that God's grace operates through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the, he is the executor of God's grace. And the Bible talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's referred to as wind, fire, water. But in one place in the Bible, and one place only, it's in the book of Mark, I believe. He's referred to as the porter. And Jesus says, and he commanded the porter to watch. The porter. And the Holy Spirit is watching, circulating, revealing Jesus to us tonight, wanting to do something in our lives if we'll allow it to happen, whatever that might be. And I don't know what your need may be, but the Holy Spirit is the one who will make that happen. I want to tell you a story in closing. My dad was a wonderful evangelist. He was holding a camp meeting in southern Alabama back in the early 50s. He had to ride the train back home from southern Alabama to Greensboro, North Carolina. So the day before the camp meeting was to end, he had some friends take him up to Evergreen, Alabama to the train station so he could go ahead and buy his ticket and reserve his room on that Pullman car. And so then the camp meeting was over the next day, and it had been raining, Dad said, when he told this story. It had been raining. He said, so those folks took him back to the train station the next day and let him out. He said his goodbyes, and he walked in. The station master was the only one there in the train station. And the station master said to my dad, Reverend Loman, you're going to be the only person that gets on that train and there will be nobody that gets off. So it would really help our schedule if you would just walk down the track. And he pointed to a place down the track. He said, you walk down the track to that place 
That's about where your Pullman car will stop and you can get right on board and then they can go right on their way and keep on schedule. So my dad said I told him I would do that and I came out of the train station and not too long I heard the train whistle in the distance and then saw the light and he said I walked down the track and he said I was trying to dodge puddles. There's a lot of mud and grit and grime because of the recent rain and he said I finally arrived at that place where he told me to be and that train pulled right up there and there was the Pullman car that I would be on and my dad said I didn't see the engineer and I didn't see the conductor. But when that train came to a stop, he said, I saw the steps be let down at the end of that car. And he said, I saw a black man in a white jacket step out to the top of those steps. And he said, sir, it was the porter. He said, sir, can I help you carry your load? And my dad said, I handed him my suitcase and my top coat. And he says, I walked up the steps onto that Pullman car. It dawned on me. That's what the heavenly porter, that's what the Spirit of God said to me when I came and I experienced his saving grace. He said, would you let me carry your load? Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, he said. I'll carry your load. He said, as I boarded that train, started down the hallway, and the porter just glanced over his shoulder, and he said, sir, just follow me. And my dad said, I thought for a minute, that's exactly what the heavenly porter told me. After he got me on board, the Holy Spirit said, just follow me. Just follow me. That said, I followed him down that corridor, came to my room, and he put my bags into that room, and he fixed the bed for me. And he said, then that black porter said, sir, he said, he hadn't asked me my name. That had to be where I'd been, where I was going. He just simply said, sir, if you need me through the night, there's a little button right over there under the window. Just push that button and I'll come. And my dad said, by this time, I was about to have a camp meeting in my soul. <laughs> he said, because that's what the heavenly porter told me after he got me on board and told me to follow him. He told me, if you ever need me, if you ever need me, just push the button and I'll be at your beck and call. Dad said I slept well that night because I was tired. He said the next morning I got up and got dressed and reached over under the little table where I placed my shoes the previous night and he said they were all dirty and grimy because of the rain and the mud that I'd had to try and step around and over before I got on the train. He said I reached over to get my shoes and he said, I looked, and there was not a speck of dirt on them. That porter had come in while I was sleeping and taking my shoes, and he cleaned off all the grime, all the dirt, and all the mud, and how they were 
clean as clean could be. And my dad said, that's exactly what the heavenly porter said he'd do for me. Once he got me on board, if I'd follow him, he'd be with me whenever I'd need him at his beck and call, and he's cleaned me up. He's cleaned me up after he got me on board. He said, I was getting ready to go down to the dining car for breakfast. He said, normally the conductor comes and says, breakfast is served in the dining car. He said, but that morning, the porter came and said, sir, breakfast is being served in the dining car. And Ned said, if I hadn't wanted to go to the dining car, all I would have had to have done would have been to say to that porter, I don't feel too well today. Would you mind bringing me my breakfast to my room? He said, because you see there underneath the window, there's a slot, and they take this little table, and they slide it into that slot where you can eat right there. He said, if I'd have wanted him to, he'd have brought me my food that morning, and he would have put it right there. And that's what the heavenly porter does for us. After he gets us on board, and we follow him, and he's there for us whenever we need him, and he cleans us up. He says, I'll set before you good things to eat. I'll feed your mouth. I found out that the world's offerings aren't very tasty. They don't last very long. They're not very satisfying. Dad said, we got on up into the state of Georgia, on up to the South Carolina state line. He said, that porter still hadn't asked me my name, where I was going or where I had been. He said, he came back to check on me. He said, I looked at that porter. And I said, Mr. Porter, how far are you going with me on this trip? And he said, that black porter looked at me and said, sir, I'm going with you to the end of the line. <laughs> and that's what the heavenly porter tells, tells us. Get us on board. We experience the saving grace, the keeping grace, the helping grace. He feeds us with good things, and he says, I'm not going to leave you. I'll not forsake you. I'll go with you all the way to the end of the line. He said, we got on up into North Carolina around High Point, and he, he finally came back, and he said, sir, where are you going? And my dad said, I'm going to Greensboro. And he said, he looked at me and said, you're almost home. And we are. We're almost home. And we're going to make it, not of our own merit, but by and through the grace of God as we access it through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit into our lives. I remember that day when my dad came home on that train. It's still tucked back there in my memory banks. I might have been five years old. But I remember one of our relatives, mother didn't drive, taking us down to the train station in Greensboro. And we stood there and watched that train come in. And my older sister Janice, who is now 76 years old, she was being held, or maybe standing beside mom. I, I, she wasn't being held, she'd been too old. Standing beside mom. And when, 
When dad walked off that train, she said, there's my daddy. There's my daddy. I'm so thankful tonight for the grace of God in my life. It's been extended to us. The life of David amazes me. When he was good, he was really good. When he was bad, he was really bad. But in between all the junk of his life and the greatness of his life, he was titled a man after God's own heart because if for no other reason he, had, he demonstrated to Mephibosheth what God's grace looks like and how it operates in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you that it's been extended to us. I don't know who this was for tonight. Maybe it was for me. But I want to thank you for your grace in my life. Where would I be had it not been for the grace of God? That unmerited divine favor. I don't want your grace to just be measured out. I want it to be treasured in my life. Father, if there are those here tonight that need to reach out by faith and experience grace, whatever facet of grace they need to experience, that's between them and you. I pray that they'd come. Might not be a bad idea for some of us just to come and thank you for your grace in our lives. Whatever the reason, Father, we're thankful for your grace. I'm going to open the altar. If you'd like to come, if for no other reason, just to give thanks for his grace. Why don't you come? Why don't you just come? Just come. If you're here tonight and you need some measure of grace in your life, come. Just come. He's here to extend his grace to you.
feel like I'm interrupting something. The Holy Spirit is here. So I'm just going to linger just a minute or so, okay? Let you pray. Give God thanks for his grace. Receive his grace, whatever you may need tonight. chase them down like the hound of heaven. And God, that there would be one day too when they're captured by your love. So Lord, we thank you for that in advance. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for being here tonight. We're going to take our offering tonight and continue to pray that God will help us receive all that we need for to help Lane and to be um, able to send him off with a great love offering and um, know that God will take care of him and as we do our best. So as our ushers are going to come. I'm going to sing a song, the offertory. <laughs> There's no music. Jesus loves me. <laughs> this I know. Sing along with me if you know. <laughs> That's right, I will sing until we get that offering. <laughs> all right, so tomorrow night is our last night. We'll have dinner. Thanks to all those that are helping with dinner. Wow, incredible. Thank you for that. Thank you for being here tonight, and uh, we're just trusting that God is going to have, we're going to have a great closing night. Will you call somebody that you haven't seen here this week and invite them to come tomorrow? I'll tell you, I've been doing that this week, and I've had people show up. And so if you'll just reach out, sometimes people just need to be invited and be reminded. So if you'll do that, bring a friend. We're going to have a great night tomorrow night and uh, as we close out our time together. All right, God bless you. Have a great evening.